It is my privilege and our honor to welcome Ahmad Shahada to the platform this morning. Ahmad is the president of Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary, which is located in Jordan, in case you're wondering, that's in the Middle East. And you may be sitting there thinking, I never knew there was an evangelical Christian seminary in the Middle East. So Ahmad, why don't you tell us a little bit about your family and this work in the Middle East called JETS. Thank you. Charles, it's really good to be with you again. I've been here many times before, and it's good to be here again. Many times I've been alone, but this time my wife, Julia, is with me there. She's there, and it's uh, it's so good to be with you again. Yes. This summer has been 41 years. Wonderful. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we're uh, we're there uh, living. Actually, I came to Christ as an international student in this country. University of California, San Diego. Somebody came and shared the gospel with me. So indebted to this country. It was here that I came to know the Lord. It was here I was trained. It was here that I was sent, supported. Seminary is 28 years old. We seek to train uh, men and women from throughout the Middle East, Arab Peninsula, North Africa. That's a a block of 22 Arabic-speaking countries. That's uh, about 380 million people. We're trying to get men and women from these countries to train them. And it's wonderful to see them be absorbed in the truth and change and develop conviction and vision for their countries as they return. So you see here examples of graduations. This is God's doing and lots of stories against great odds to have this. And so we're very thankful for the privilege of serving him there. Well, Calvary Church is pleased to have partnered with Jets and with Ahmad for years now, decades, because of more than 15 years, we've been working together And we are certainly excited to continually hear of what's happening there. Lives being changed, communities changed, churches planted. I asked you during the break between services, how many graduates have been deployed into that general area now? Yes, we have uh, those who have degrees. We have a, it's a missions school, but it's also a bachelor's, master's, and doctoral level. So we have about 400 who have actual degrees and many more who just get the training without degrees. And they serve in 21 countries. And planting churches mostly. And it's just uh, uh, just amazing that this happened. This is God's doing again. Well, tell us a little bit about the demographics. We're uh, kind of uh, aware of North American demographics, and the nuns seem to be increasing, those that affiliate with nun religion. Right. Tell us about the demographics where you okay. serve. I mentioned uh, 380 million people that speak Arabic. 96% would be Muslim. The remaining 4%, 2% of the 4% are evangelical Christians, all right? Here's that part of the world that used to be the, this is the, this is the home of the early church, now one of the most needy mission fields today. Isn't that amazing? So not only are the number of Christians small, but also liberty is not, for the majority of people, it's not free for anyone to publicly become a Christian. That's one of the most difficult things. Then we have the challenge of the teachings of the majority around us that's so against the gospel. They believe that Christ did not die on the cross. There's no need for that, they say. God can decree forgiveness without an atonement. 
They have a concept of the nature of God that's very different than the biblical understanding. We deal with those challenges, you know, um, terrorism. How do you show the difference of genocide in the Old Testament with terrorism? We, have to, we deal with these difficult questions. Then the whole issue of the Arab-Israeli conflict, which you have not heard about. You know, what do you do with uh, Palestinians and Jordanians and Iraqis and Syrians that hate the word Israel? It's in the Bible. What do you do with this? We have to, and then to watch the students, you know, absorb truth and cleaned up from thinking of the majority and be freed up. And, you know, so many of them come to the seminary with the intention of immigrating to the West. But when they get this training, they say, hey, we can make a difference now. Let's stay. Why are we going to the West? Let's just stay. So that's wonderful to behold. Why don't you share with us a few of the stories that keep you going, those things that get you excited and say, yeah, God's really at work here. Exciting things are happening. Why don't you tell a couple of those stories? Okay, one story would be really the the graduates. They're the heroes, and they go back. One uh, example is uh, a man who lost everything in Syria. You've seen Aleppo. He's from Aleppo. You've seen it demolished to the ground, you know. They come to the, he came to the seminary with his wife, did so well, and then returned. He said, how can my people trust me if I am only there at times of peace? He went back. And his name is Pastor Sennacherib. That's his name. Another example is just what, how God works in us while we're there, the team of teachers and staff, to show us that our joy is in him not in success, not in numbers. If it works out and we have more and more graduates, it's wonderful. But if it does not, we have an anchor. God has shown us repeatedly to stay there. And so those are a couple of examples. There's more. Well, besides sending a check, which uh, is important, we want to come alongside and pray for you guys, pray for what's happening over there at Jets in the seminary. Why don't you share with us a few things that we can be praying about as Jets is brought to our mind, and as we think about you and your ministry there. Right, well, one would be, as I mentioned, the graduates. You know, this year, they're going back to difficult countries, poor economies. They have to make a living and then serve. Most of them end up planting churches. So pray for graduates. Not only for outgoing students, but for incoming, that God would choose men and women of his choice to come to study with us. And then uh, pray for are many programs that are invisible for security reasons, for publications, for example, television programs aired from outside the Middle East into the Middle East, books um, and different cell groups in various countries. Pray for protection, for strength. And again, thank you for really partnering with us. It's made a big difference. We draw strength from relationships like this. Thank you. Well, uh, we asked Ahmad if he would take one of our parables Um, And so we asked Ahmad if he would speak, and he graciously agreed. So if you would, take your Bibles, turn to Matthew 13, and Ahmad's going to lead us. Please bear with me as I translate in my mind from Arabic to English, and then from my English to your English. So we'll see. (laughs) I was asked to speak on the parable of the wheat and tares, as I understand you've been going through a series on this, uh, and I um, was asked to do this. So... I will uh, read that portion of scripture found in Matthew 13, Matthew 13, 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed, Heads, 
Then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell you, I will tell the harvesters, first correct the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Um, then he gave them two more parables and we jumped down to verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom and everything, every, sorry, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. This is the word of God. Now this, uh, uh, this parable really speaks about response to evil. But in particular, it's not evil, evil per se, but it's those who cause evil or evildoers. That's what this parable is about. How do we respond to that? So it's not really talking about response to tragedies or to uh, you know, accidents, but it's really talking about response to man's sin. That's what it's talking about. It's, it's man's sin that leads to war, terrorism, murder, injustice, people displacement, poverty, rape, etc., etc. You may have personally experienced, for example, betrayal, defamation, treated very cruelly by your friends, or you thought they were friends. What do you do with that? That's tough. You may feel maybe disenchanted with some of the political leaders of the country for some of them not holding to biblical values or to values of God. What do you do with that? How do you respond? So this is what the, this parable is dealing with, is the how, first of all. How do you respond? That's our... I have, uh, in response to this, four points, and each begins with a, the letter, each word begins with the letter P to remember that. So we're talking about the um, priority, the pain, you know, 
we're talking about the patience and then the power. So let's begin. So how do we respond? First, the first thing is uh, the priority of understanding. Priority of understanding. This, this parable is really all about understanding. When you understand, it makes a big difference. It changes things. And the reason we know this is about understanding is just the parable right before it, which is really the introductory parable to all the parables. That's how Mark introduced it as the introductory parable. Ends like this. It says, the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, understands it. Then at the end of the, the parable, the Lord says, uh, you know, those who, those, the righteous shall shine like the sun. He quotes actually from Daniel, and in Daniel, uh, it says, the one who understands, those who understand, those who have insight, and he uh, changes the word, those who have insight, to those who, those who are righteous, those who understand are righteous. They will shine like the sun. It's all about understanding. Then we'll see that more as we go on. So here's a parable. Uh, The Lord says, um, okay, um, he says, uh, the one who sowed the good seed is the son son of man. Now here's what happens in a parable is you've got two things next to one another for comparison, to have a lesson there. Uh, So the one who sows uh, the, the good seed is the son of man. Um, the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. That's us who spread the word of God in this world we live in. Um, but then the weeds are the people of the evil one that go against God and spread untruth about God. Um, the, enemy, uh, the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the judgment of the end, where God sends his angels to bring uh, everyone before him, and that's judgment day. Um, so the, the, the one question here, and this is the, the next slide, the one question on the disciples' mind is this. Since the Messiah is here, where is the kingdom? If he is Messiah, king, where's the kingdom? Um, you know, actually, this points to the, this constant perennial problem of, of men and women, humanity, misunderstanding God. God is the most misunderstood being in existence. So misunderstood. So are his ways misunderstood, you know. Now, Matthew here begins with, uh, you know, talking about, he begins his gospel with the birth of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the power of Christ. Uh, But then in his gospel, he has a teaching purpose. He's trying to teach us something. We know this because of the way he groups the material, because of his emphasis on discourse, discussion, just like taking place here. You know, the emphasis on prophecy, the word disciple is meant so many times, learning, and then the word parable. Uh, and actually, here, not only is there a question, there is a turning point, a turning point. Uh, 
Actually, verse, I mean, chapter 13 comes right after chapter 12. And in chapter 12, there's a climactic rejection of Christ by the people. They actually accused him of performing miracles of healing by being demon-possessed. They accused him of demon possession. And that was the kind of the ultimate uh, re rejection of Christ by the people of Israel. Now, at this point, Christ changed his talk. He, he changed. He turned from speaking about the nearness of the kingdom to speaking about the mysteries of the kingdom. From nearness to mysteries. So I can, and then he used parables in order to communicate the mysteries. Now, what is the word mystery? Mystery refers to something that was either unknown at all or was not fully known. All right? The purpose of the parable is for believers to understand and unbelievers not to understand. In other words, it reveals truth to those who want, who have the right heart, but it conceals truth from people who do not have the right heart. So when he talks about mystery, he talks of, talks of, he's talking about a wonderful truth, but, but that only people of the right heart can understand. Again, this emphasis on understanding, priority of understanding. Um, and then he has here parables in two groups. Uh, he gives this parable and then two more parables. And he goes again uh, along with the disciples, explains the parable of wheat and tares, gives two more, uh, two more, uh, three more parables, and then ends with a concluding parable. All in one day he did that. So um, actually here on this subject of understanding, it talks about the opposite of understanding is ignorance, or willful ignorance. And something is to be said about ignorance. Ignorance gives rise to about nine-tenths of the world's conversational output. It's true. It's amazing. It's everywhere. Ignorance. People do not understand. They just miss it, miss it continually, especially when it's truth about God. So here, again, this priority of understanding. But why? Why the Just a little bit more about why. Well, the second point is, is really this, because there is really pain in understanding. That's what makes it difficult. We have to understand, but there's pain in understanding. Um, and uh, actually, the, uh, in speaking, he talks about, he describes this, uh, using this parable, the actual beginning parable, then its explanation. It talks about, okay, here's a wheat, they're planted and they bring forth fruit. But then the, the tares just simply appear. Here's fruit and here's appearance. And actually, um, uh, when, when Jesus explains that parable, he only focuses on the judgment at the end, but he does not explain the conversation between the servants and the master. Meaning that we are to draw from that parable of the conversation of the servants with the master, the understanding in light of this judgment that comes at the end. But in, in, this, uh, in this conversation between the servants and the master, they, um, uh, they say to him, uh, uh, they say, uh, you know, um, you know uh, he, they say, let us, uh, um, 
lest you want us to go and actually pull up the tears, just pull them up. And uh, the response of the master who represents Jesus, he says, no, don't do that. And actually this points to the wrong spirit that we often have. We cannot see evil. We want evil to be judged right away. You know, our, our problem, we cannot see evil and see God sitting there doing nothing. We want judgment. That's our spirit. You know, one uh, commentator put it this way. His name is Adam Clark. He says, quote, a zeal, a zeal for the extirpation of heretics and wicked men, not regulated by these words of our blessed Savior, allows no time for the one to grow strong in goodness or the other to forsake their evil courses. They are of a spirit very opposite to his, who care not if they root up the wheat, provided they can but gather up the tares. This is the, the wrong spirit, you know. And actually, uh, this brings us to the, to the point that, you know, actually, one of our responses is a philosophical response. That's just like the disciple. A philosophical response to the presence of evil and suffering. What is the gist of the philosophical response? The philosophical response says, you know, it's incompatible for evil and suffering to exist, and at the same time, an all-powerful, all-loving God to exist at the same time. It's incompatible. They cannot coexist together. It can't be. That's a philosophical response. Um, but actually, um, this, what, what we learn from Jesus, from this parable and on and on in his teaching, that this is a hasty response. It, it may seem logical, but it's hasty, rushed, unfair response. Very hasty. It's like a child um, thinking, concluding that his parents don't love him because they don't give him everything he or she asks for. Yeah, you know, can't be. Parents oftentimes say no to the requests of their children. Uh, it's much like this. But there's, there's more to this. Um, or let, or let me put it before we go on. You know, your personal feeling that there is no meaning to the existence of evil and suffering does not mean that there is no meaning. Hang in there. Don't judge so fast, so quickly. Actually, uh, when we do that, it's amazing how unbelievers are. You know, they, they want to live without laws, of God especially. No right and wrong. Then suddenly something they don't like happens, and suddenly they're all about morality. This can't be. This should be. Well, what happened? This is a, you know, you were without laws, and now we are with laws. You know, this is a, a double standard, in other words. And they start to say, this this should be. This is what this is what is right, and this is what is wrong. So actually, they, for somebody to say what is right and wrong, they must appear to a standard, a higher standard, and that standard is their own making. In other words, they put themselves in the place of God when they do that. And look, if all there exists is this universe and no God, then let the strong eat the weak, and who's to say no? Nobody can stop it. You know, it's a fabricated uh, measure of man's own doing. You just want to put God away and make them better than God and then the place of God with a fabricated system of 
uh, right and wrong. You know, and actually, when man does that, you know what? They lose the opportunity of discovery of deeper truths. They cannot, under, they cannot fathom evil and suffering. They cannot understand it. Neither can they understand God. They miss out on understanding because of this quick judgment, you know, about God. And uh, actually, having the presence of evil and suffering is difficult for both believers and unbelievers. Let me tell you, doubt in the existence of God is much, a much greater problem than faith in his existence. If God does not exist, it's chaos par excellence. Sometimes we say things that we, you know, um, we just do not understand the implications of our words, you know. Along with this, with this is not only doubt in the existence of God, but doubt in the character of God. And it goes like this, you know, if he, if he can stop evil and evil continues, then he is able, but he's not loving. If he cannot stop evil, then he may be loving, but he's not able. That's the argument. But again, it's that same hasty conclusion that leads to this downward spiral into misunderstanding, loss of deep understanding, just contradictions after contradictions in a world that's totally hopeless, just hopeless. And actually, more and more philosophers are admitting the bankruptcy of this understanding of the incompatibility of the presence of evil and suffering with an omnipotent, loving God. They're totally compatible. Um, But then, uh, with the philosophical response, we also have equally an emotional response, an emotional one. Um, the next slide. You know, actually, um, we, we can say many stories. I, I'll never forget uh, one time walking downtown Beirut during a very dangerous time of a civil war, Beirut, Lebanon. And there was an, an older man who apparently had a large family trying to make a living. He had a kind of a, a big tray, wooden tray of cakes and that he was trying to sell, to make a few pennies for his family. Um, suddenly comes the police, and they claim that that was illegal. They take every, all of that, they take it away from him, and, and they go. And here he was without his means of living. I remember him standing there, raising his fist, and just cursing God publicly. Just, just my heart, just, just, I felt with him. You know, we can certainly sympathize. What, about, what do you do with, with the parents of that Jordanian pilot that was burned at the stake? It was, it was on the news. How are they going to fathom this emotionally? With this, uh, you know, mass migrations of people from Iraq and Syria into Jordan because of war, People with no, no income, no money, just want to live. What do you do with this nine-year-old girl who was sold to a 60-year-old man to be his wife in return for some money? What is she going to grow thinking? Um, one man 
was an eyewitness of people being thrown in a furnace alive in torture camps, said this, I quote, I shall never forget this horrible flame that devoured my faith forever. I will never forget those moments when my God and my spirit became dead and my dreams became dust. Tough. You may be going through something where you, you go, why me? Why now? Why this? This is the emotional cry of the heart. You know? And again, we can certainly sympathize. We certainly should not judge people that do that. We may have done that ourselves, just these cries, and the Lord knows that. He understands. But look, when these words are uttered by people, they do not realize the implications of them. They have severe implications. Actually, these words may back, come back eventually to find us again. Because anytime we talk about right from wrong, we're again claiming a higher standard. Whose standard? if God does not exist or does not care. But the, the Bible is filled with stories, <laughs> so many stories. Joseph, with the agony he went through. But then that led to the salvation of his people eventually. You know, actually, we, there are many, many stories. People who have experienced tremendous loss and pain they would say, I would never choose to go through that again, but I would not trade it for anything. It has turned my life upside down with glory and joy, unspeakable. I never thought I would experience this level of growth. Actually, the New Testament says, Peter says, if this, in this you greatly rejoice, First Peter 1, 6 and 7, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And on and on, many verses. Timothy Keller, who I've learned a lot from, he has a book entitled The Reason for God, came out a few days ago, bestseller. There's a lot, I encourage you to read that. But... Let me quote something about him. Quote, he says, Things put into the furnace properly can be shaped, refined, purified, and even beautified. This is a remarkable view of suffering that if faced and endured with faith, it can in the end only make us better, stronger, and more filled with greatness and joy. Suffering then actually can use evil against itself. It can thwart the destructive purposes of evil and bring light and life out of darkness and death. Unquote. Powerful words. This is a Christian life. And stories abound about people in the Bible. Job. Paul. The hearers of faith in Hebrews 11. Read that. Tremendous suffering without having received the promises. You know. And in those examples, the 
weakness of man meets the power of Christ and something enormous happens every time, every time. And actually, instead of using evil against God, we must work with God against evil. When evil and suffering happens, we must uh, not run away, run away from God, but run to God to seek refuge. And in Him alone will we find the deeper truths and the real truths and a real life right out of suffering. That's what Christ did, didn't, isn't it? We'll talk about that more. So... Let me tell you, if your God is not big enough to overcome evil and suffering, he will never be big enough to worship him. Never. Actually, in this discussion about the pain, and I said, this, the reason it's, there's pain in understanding is that what, what is Jesus saying in this parable is that there is a period of time unrevealed before, that's why it's a mystery, unrevealed before, where, where evil and good coexist together. We are children of the kingdom, right here, but all around us is evil and evildoers. This is a period that was never revealed before. This is the, the pain of it. We have priority of understanding, but there's pain in understanding. We have to accept it, actually. So the answer to the one question of Jesus was the Messiah, where is the kingdom, is that Jesus is certainly king, but he has a different program than ours. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. He's on a throne, never, never left it for one second. He's in control. Okay. So this is a priority of understanding, the pain in understanding. So what is the result of that? What is the result? This is the patience of understanding. The patience of understanding. Actually, Jesus said, you know, when, they, when the servants came to the master and said, shall we pull up the tears? He said, no. What did, they, what did he then say? He said, let them be. Actually, that word let is the very word that we often translate into the word, literally it means forgive, just forgive to let be, to tolerate, let it be, it's okay, hang in there. <laughs> but then the next word is until, until there's a, there's, a, there's a forgiveness, there's a waiting until a time is coming, until. Actually, <clears throat> This waiting until judgment. When we know that in the end there will be a reckoning, it's the greatest cure to this desire for revenge. <laughs> May God cure us from this lust for revenge. He says, hang in there until. When you know the until, what's going to happen at that point, it's a great cure for this desire for revenge. Patience. The patience of understanding. See what understanding does? That's what the parable is about, understand. Um, then you go, uh, my goodness, uh, it's, all, it's all good. What you've said is fine. But I don't have what it takes to have this kind of patience. Where do I get the strength from? 
from where do we get the strength to do this? Where do we get it from? Actually, if you look carefully at the text, the Lord uh, a couple of times refers to himself in the title, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. He says, the Son of Man is the one that planted the seeds. The Son of Man is the one who sows at the end. But in order to do that, he sends. Sorry, he sows and then he sends. In the beginning, he sows the seed and then he sends the angels for the day of judgment. Okay? That's the Son of Man. Next slide. The Son of Man. Now that word, the title... um, Son of Man is a favorite of Christ. It's used 79 times in the New Testament. 76 of those are in the Gospels. And they're all spoken, they're all spoken by Christ himself, about himself. He likes that. You know why? Because the title Son of Man actually is used of man himself, us. We're son of men in that or we're human. But then it, that, that title also says that we are lacking. We have fallen short. But then he, when he uses that title, Son of Man of himself, he's coming to take our place, to be the perfect Son of Man. See? That's what he's doing. So he, he likes that because he's coming, he's using it in the sense of him being a savior. See, he's coming to save us from something. So it, it, it's talking about him, the eternal one, the divine one, adding on the human nature. Wow. Leaving heaven, coming down here to do something for us, but then that Son of Man is victorious. He died on the cross, took away our sins. He died to take away our sins completely. Not only did He take something from us, but He also gave us something. He gave us His righteousness. He took our sins and then clothed us with His righteousness. He died, was buried. But then he rose from the dead to prove that that promise is true. And in his rising from the dead, we are raised with him. We die with him. We rise with him in newness of life. That's because he is the Son of Man. The Son of God became the Son of Man. Two natures in one. Only him. There's no one else like him. So he's, he's using that. And actually in, in the verse, in the chapter right before it, it says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea, the sea monster, the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What Christ, see, that's what distinguishes Christ. He did something. If you have a God telling you all the time that he loves you, but it doesn't do anything about it, he does not love you. This is a God who actually loves you. He did something in in the past. So this uh, Son of Man, he... He sowed, he sows truth today, but he sends the angel at the end. So we are to anchor ourselves in the past of what he did for us with the assurance of what he's going to do in the future for us in judgment so that today we can have that patience. Actually, uh, um, let me put it this way. Next slide. Look, it is impossible impossible to look at the cross and doubt his love. Impossible. It is equally impossible to look at the empty tomb 
and doubt his power. He's got love and power in him. He's got it. Evil and suffering, but a loving and powerful God. Can you live with that? And through that, this change in our lives, if we, if we really understand it. You know, let me share with you a quote by John Calvin. It's an introduction to a commentary on the New Testament. Mind these words, just amazing words. He says, everything good we could think or desire is to be found in the same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back. Captive to deliver us. Condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing. Sin, a sin offering for our righteousness. Marred that we may be made fair, beautiful. He died for our life. So that by him fury is made gentle. Wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt canceled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, disorder ordered, Division united, disgraced, replaced by ennoblement. Hallelujah. Rebellion subjected. Intimidation intimidated. Ambush uncovered. Assaults assailed. Force forced back. Combat combated. War warred against. Vengeance avenged. Torment tormented. Damnation damned. The abyss sunk into the abyss. Hell transfixed. Death dead. Mortality made immortal. In short, mercy was swallowed up, has swallowed up all misery. Mercy has swallowed up all misery. Goodness, all misfortune. We are comforted in our tribulation. Joyful in sorrow. Glorying in abuse, abounding in poverty, warmed in our nakedness, patient among evils, living in death. Unquote. Wow. <clears throat> Praise be to his name. What a, what a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Savior. Let me uh, summarize our, our message today in these few words, just put it all together. Look, response to evil around us is by steadfast patience. Hang in there. Made possible by holding on to the cross until its climactic salvation is fulfilled. In the judgment of all evil on our, on our entrance into his kingdom. Amen.